Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. I am your co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we have got an all-new poem for you today, a wonderful one as always. We've had a couple rebroadcasts as of late, but we are back with new, fresh goodness. And we are recording from the same place we always record, which is in our respective homes. But I have been in my home for, well, quite a while, but uh, two days going without leaving outside, which is not recommended because you need to get a little walk in there uh, working on that. But yeah, it's um, a wild and terrifying time. And I hope everyone is safe out there and finding ways to be healthy, both physically and mentally. And I hope that, you know, I always like podcasts to have a little friend with me wherever I go. And I hope this podcast can be a little of something of that for you today. Absolutely. I have also been indoors for the last two days because Connor is in Minnesota. I have decamped from my usual locale in New York City up here to Bennington, Vermont, where I am hiding out. And it snowed. A whole bunch of snow. Uh, so I technically could have gone out to walk around, but uh, did not really want to do that. So yeah, been inside. <laughs> As Connor said, doing the best to stay physically and mentally active and engaged, finding creative home workouts for my brain and my body. Uh, if you have access to an outdoor space, I'm experimenting. I got a bunch of rocks together from around the yard. I think I'm going to like run around with them or something because, you know, why not? You got to find the weights where you can when you can't go sure. to the gym. So, you know, uh, <laughs> working on that. Yeah. And if that's going to do it for my body, yeah, got to find the podcasts for the mind. I've been listening to some Intelligence Squared debates. And, you know, for those of you listening to this episode, maybe this is the first episode of Close Talking you've come across. We've got like 80 other ones that, you know, they're there if you need them. This actually might be number 90. Um, that's true. We've so got like 89 other ones. <laughs> They're out there. They're chilling in cyberspace um, waiting for you to, you know, download them or not. Do what you feel. Well, this poem, I think, will be, I hope, especially meaningful during this time. I, I've loved it for a long time. It's by the poet uh, Adrian Rich, who's one of our great poets, one of the great American poets. She was born in 1948, I believe, and she won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. She won the National Book Award for her book, Diving into the Wreck. That's probably one of her most famous poems is the title poem, Diving into the Wreck. Yeah, just like a wonderful, radical poet who really kind of, I feel like, walked the walk of what, you know, a transformative poetics could be. And I feel like this poem is a really good example of that. And yeah, uh, it's a little on the longer side. So I think we should just get right into it. This poem is part of a larger sequence uh, that's called An Atlas of the Difficult World. This section is called Dedications. I know you're reading this poem late, 
before leaving your office of the one intense yellow lamp spot in the darkening window and the lassitude of a building faded to quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem standing up in a bookstore far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven across the plains, enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed and the open valise speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum and before running up the stairs toward a new kind of love your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room of eyes met and unmeeting of identity with strangers. I know you are reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out at too early an age. I know you are reading this poem through your failing sight, the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand, because life is short and you too are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem which is not your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are. Whew. Mm. Man, this poem gets me every time. Yeah. Yeah. It builds so quietly. Yeah, it really does. Which, um, I, th I don't know. I Oftentimes I feel like, kind of no matter how many times I've read the poem for myself or read it aloud, like when I hear you reading it, it's a totally different experience. And that is something that I think I'd kind of noticed, but noticed so much more hearing somebody else reading it aloud, just the way that it accumulates. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, and because it's, it's always like, you know, no matter how many times like you read it, you're, I mean, you're, you know, you're in different places each time you're reading it or whatever, but, you know, it's still you and when there's like another person I don't know, just like I, I feel the same way too when you read poems and like the different parts that other people like 
lean into or emphasize or de-emphasize and you know you know it's like a cover of a song or something there's there's like a different texture that brings out something more but yeah it does build in such a such a beautiful way and yeah i guess maybe before we get too into it we could do a little narrative summary i mean basically it's kind of an address to this number of different people and it's like i know you are reading this poem and then it's sort of describing a different person and their situation and so the first person we have is like leaving their office kind of at the end you know having a long day at work the next person is in a bookstore and they're maybe in the midwest and there's the plains and it's sort of <laughs> snowing in early spring aka they're me in minnesota right now and the next person um i know you're reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear it's unclear what exactly the situation but it's like possibly a situation of like domestic violence or some kind of like you know they're they know that they have to leave but they cannot leave yet there's something un, unsafe in that space then there's someone who like has found a new love and is on the train and is like reading the poem as the train is sort of you know, getting to their stop there's someone who's watching the news or you know has the news on of the intifada this poem was written i think finished in like 1990 or 1991 i believe so 91 after the gulf war which it was partially in response to I think that's probably right. And then there's someone in a waiting room, you know, in like a doctor's office or a hospital. There's someone who's who's young by fluorescent light. There's someone who's older, who's like, you know, eyes are failing. There's someone who's a parent, perhaps a mother who has a child on their shoulder. There's someone who's first language is not English and they're reading it. And then the kind of last ones are sort of move into the more abstract, basically. And that's kind of like, you know, what the poem is. And yeah. how is this contextualized within the rest of the longer piece, since it is an excerpt? I would say it covers a lot of ground, but the title actually does like a lot of explanatory work and Atlas of the Difficult World. And like, it's like trying to map out where to position oneself within like, the whatever that is called America kind of thing and like trying to reckon with and like hold accountable both being of it but also like all the people that have been forgotten and like oppressed in various ways by the thing whatever that is America kind of thing. <laughs> um, that's, I mean that's always like a fascinating project poetically or otherwise. I know I read personally choose to read a lot of stuff that deals with those themes and artistically attacks them. Um, but I think it's particularly interesting to be doing that between 88 and 91, because that was the period of sort of geopolitical power transition where the Soviet Union falls, the United States becomes the only remaining superpower. And then you, you have this immediate test of what George H.W. Bush and others immediately termed the New World Order, which was the Gulf War, where he successfully brought together a coalition of countries to take unified military action through international institutions, like proving 
that cooperation of a certain kind in a certain context was possible. But what you then have is, as you were saying, for Adrienne Rich, her poetic project is both situating not just what does it mean to be American, but particularly focusing on people who've been left out of that national narrative or who have been marginalized in different ways. But there's also this question at that same time that is kind of confronting even heteronormative America or the collective idea of the United States as a country where the question is, where does the United States fit in the world now that the balance of power that had been dominant throughout the entire second half of the 20th century since the, you know, you can either time it to the end of the Second World War in 45 or to 49 when the Soviet Union first developed and tested nuclear weapons. But you had what in the international relations world is termed the bipolar world where you have two superpowers to now having one. There's this sort of two levels of uncertainty going on there where there's this overlay of geopolitical uncertainty and then there's the constant uncertainty of marginalized populations within the country, which I find an interesting, I don't know, that was that was in the back of my head as I was reading through this, because I think this poem, this excerpt, I should say, from the poem is specifically dealing with that highly personal piece and that sort of individual piece. But I was thinking about all of these yous existing in a country where that's kind of the bigger question in the background at all times. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think that's exactly right. It reminds me there's another poem of hers. It's got like the funniest title ever. It's like trying to have a conversation with a man or something like that. <laughs> uh, and Haven't it's we all pretty at funny, but it... another either tried or <laughs> you know, if we're honest, been that man. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah, the man in the poem on bad behavior, but there's like this kind of thing where on the one hand, it's about this relationship, but then on the other hand, they're in like the Southwest desert where the U.S. has been like testing nuclear bombs. And so there's this kind of like, you know, metaphor between that and then this relationship between the speaker and the man, which kind of is like. That one is sort of more explicitly talking about the, you know, larger geopolitical situation. Um, but it, it's very true that Rich has always, you know, was very politically committed in, in an intense way. When she won the National Book Award in 1974, the two other writers who had been nominated were Alice Walker and Audre Lorde. And they had agreed beforehand that whichever one won, they would sort of accept it all together in solidarity. And she basically read this statement that they had all written together. And, you know, it sort of said like one part, we, Audre Lorde, Adrian Rich and Alice Walker together accept this word in the name of all the women whose voices have gone and still go unheard in a patriarchal world. Uh, and things like that, which is pretty badass. Hell yeah. Uh, um, and then like 20 years later, in 97, the Clinton administration awarded her the National Medal of the Arts, and she declined to accept it because <laughs> she wrote, the very meaning of art, as I understand it, is incompatible with the cynical politics of this administration. <laughs> um, <laughs> Adrian Rich, anyway. dunking on neoliberals forever. 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway, so pretty cool. There is a there's a great collected poems of all riches poems, which are a lot. It's a hefty tome. Uh, but there's a great introduction by Claudia Rankin, which is which I recommend. And there's a part, kind of what you were talking about, where Rankin's actually talking about this, the collection, the Atlas of the Difficult World, where this poem comes from. So Rankin's talking about coming across this book. I approached the volume thinking I knew what it would hold, but found myself transported by Rich's profound exploration of ethical loneliness. Rich called forward voices created in a precarious world. Although the term, quote, ethical loneliness would come to me years later from the work of the critic Jill Stauffer, I understood Rich to be drawing into her stanzas the voices of those who have been, in the words of Stauffer, who is this, she has this book called Ethical Loneliness, which is, and she defines that as people who, quote, have been abandoned by humanity, compounded by the experience of not being heard. The way I understand it is like rather than a kind of like personal loneliness in which you find yourself, you know, lonely, um, like just by happenstance or your own psychology or whatever, ethical loneliness is like the kind of socio-political conditions have made it so that you experience this kind of profound loneliness, which is to say, you know, a system that, you know, does not listen to women, women of color, black women, queer women, you know, all these all these kinds of groups of people who are excluded, both in discursive and like material terms or like such that I think the idea of it is that their personal, you know, experience is fundamentally lonely because of this larger like systemic thing. Rankin also, Claudia Rankin, her book, um, I highly recommend Don't Let Me Be Lonely, is like uh, all about that subject. But I think this this like last poem, getting back to the excerpt, you know, these people that she's kind of reaching out to. I know you're reading this poem. You know, there's the young person who like who, you know, has been counted out or count themselves out. You know, there's the person whose you know, room holds too much for them to bear. You know, there's like, you know, someone who like is in a, an area where they, you know, the dominant language is not their first language. You know, there's all these kinds of people who who like through the details of the poem, she's kind of like laying out this, you know, map or constellation of of people who have been forgotten in some way by the larger world. And, you know, I think in like the simplest sense, the poem is a kind of like reaching out to them and being like, you know, like one of my favorite parts of the poem is like at the end, I know you're reading this poem, which is not your language guessing at some words while others keep you reading and I want to know which words they are like I feel like we think of you know the poet is the declarer of wisdom and then you read it and you're like wow oh my god what a you know thank you for imparting that upon me kind of thing but this like the gesture of I want to know what words they are is a is a kind of reversal of the 
like traditional role of the speaker rather than someone who's saying something it's it's asking for something from the reader in a which way. is also the first time in the poem that we get the i that's not saying i know and it's such a profoundly yeah. it, it's interesting cuz i don't think you get the sense of any sort of overly authoritarian i even though you do get this voice saying i know something about people all over the country which could come off as a little bit i don't know surveillance statey or something but it doesn't <laughs> and i think the reason it doesn't is because there's a very empathetic quality to what the eye has noticed it's not just that it's i don't know clinically observing it feels very intimately involved and it feels like a very uh nurturing knowing of what the person is doing with this poem like i know you're reading this poem and i'm understanding the circumstances through which you are coming to the work that I have put together. So even though it is this declarative I, it also feels like a very, I don't know, empathetic I. And I feel like that is such a moment where you then see that the way that you're probably reading the poem is reaffirmed for you there because the I says, I see you. And what I love about the phrasing of you are reading this poem, which is not your language, is that it works both on the level of literally maybe English is not your first language, but also maybe poetry is not your thing. And you happen to be reading this poem and it's written in a way that's not meant for you usually, but there's parts of it that you kind of get along with. You're guessing at some words while others keep you reading. And I want to know which words they are. And I love that the they isn't specified. Does the, does the poet want to know the words that you're guessing at or the words that keep you reading or both? Mm. I, yeah. I love that ambiguity, and I do, as you were pointing out, I love that the I is reaching out saying, I want something from you too, because I feel like really productive, thoughtful, artistic relationships don't have to take the audience into account, but the ones that I resonate most with, the artists I resonate most with, are the ones who take very seriously the fact that they are writing for an audience, and it doesn't mean that they pander to the audience, but they take the audience's needs into consideration when they're putting their own work together. What does my audience need to hear from me? What do I need to communicate to them? It's not just about putting out work or like, it's not necessarily adversarial. It can be challenging, but it still has that level of empathy to it. And I feel like that's a lot of what I really was feeling coming off of this poem was that kind of artistic relationship to the audience, um, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's such a relational poem in that it's something I think about a lot. And I think I this is partly why I was drawn to this poem, like at this particular time is we're all hopefully sheltering in place. And it's a kind of very starkly isolating experience and has created all these sorts of challenges of like, I'm still a social person, like, how do I, you know, meet my social needs or, you know, in, in the most basic sense. I don't know, it's just interesting that, you know, there's like, the the zoom kind of meetings, the Skype hangouts, the Google hangouts, and they're all both wonderful. And also, of course, not the same as in person, but they're they were interesting to me in that they're this like, very explicit, kind of like connect like reaching out it's like now i am you know like 
when you don't have to <laughs> hunker down in a room, you know, you can just like move throughout the world. And then it's like, oh, and then I was at this place because of that reason. And then I talked to this person and then like I ran into like, you know, what's their name? And then we talked for a long time. And then like, well, like this person was dropping something off like at my home. And so and we were talking da 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 because of how crazy life can be and also just like normal life being so fluid it can e be easy to take for granted the kind of like the actual nature of like what a relational connection is with someone like a social thing which is just like i am in a body and you are in a body and like we are being attentive to each other for a period of time and like communicating and like emoting and from our respective, you know, skin, uh, like masks and like weird brain organ things, uh, that we're stuck behind, <laughs> like make this experience for both of ourselves where we don't feel like we're just alone, but like that we're with someone, you know, that was a very weird way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like you what, rode the line between like academic and serial killer really effectively. <laughs> our weird brain meat hidden behind our skull skin. Oh god, I'm very sorry. My apologies to everybody. <laughs> no, I love All it. I'm, I mean, I'm, it's one of the wonderful things that makes you who you are, but I felt like oh, we god. were sort of teetering on the edge of like <laughs> Yeah, we had almost got out of hand there. Flash it probably did, but I brought it back. Um, but what this, I don't know what this experience to me, like has kind of like raised the curtain on like what that interaction actually is, I guess, if that makes sense, where it's like, oh, I'm not like constantly running into people. People are important. I need to like schedule a time to like be connected with someone. And then it's going to be in this, it's virtual. And so it's like, then there's this screen that is the kind of like the medium through which we're connecting it's kind of like heightened a situation that i think is kind of always existing for everyone to certain degrees which is just that like fundamentally we are by ourselves but we also have this you know innate need to be connected to others and like that's like one of the big both joys and like struggles of life is like how do we sustain this connection when we're like fundamentally different people kind of thing and this poem for me was like such a beautiful example of like sort of like expressing that i guess and also just kind of what i think poetry does so well or what it can do is like it can create that kind of connection across so much space and time you know like when I read a poem from Adrian Rich, you know, written in like when I was born and like I feel connected to her um, or the speaker or something in, in a not the same way that I would feel connected to a friend. But it, it has the same kind of effect on me, I think. But then the poem itself is sort of demonstrating like what poetry can do, I guess, where it's like you are reading this poem and you are reading this poem and you are reading this poem. And like through the details of the poem and also like, you know, we get the sense of like, these are 
all discrete people. And because of sort of like who is chosen, we really get like a very like inclusive sense of who is in the world. You know what I mean? Um, it's very interesting. This is a slight aside, but it was reminding me of the poem, If They Come For Us uh, by Fatima Askar, which we had talked about a while ago. And similar to that one, A, there's this repeating refrain, if they should come for us. And this one is like, I know you are reading this poem. And then also there's this kind of like expansive listing of people who are very different from each other, but joined by something. But the big difference between that one and this one is like the if they should come for us poem, there's this basically this huge we, I feel, where it's like a huge us. Like we are all different, but we're all part of this we. And that kind of like unity is really powerful. That poem almost feels like a community making project. Like the listing is meant to be expansive and additive in a way that this is obviously this poem is not in the same way. Yeah, it's a recognition of like difference. There's obviously difference in the if they should come for us poem, but there's like a real fundamental difference between the I and the you in this poem. And in a way, that's kind of also the basis for the kind of connection, I guess, which is like, yeah, I don't know. I just, that's what I love so much about this poem. No, and I totally agree, because it is that this poem preserves a different kind of tension within it, because there is never a collectivization. It's still a bunch of independent yous. Um, I almost imagine, like, the way that somebody would use this in a prestige drama, where it's like the last episode of the season and the camera, like somebody, one of the actors in the series with a cool voice is reading the poem as like voiceover (laughs) and the camera just happens to drop in on each of the main characters in their own home doing their own things that may or may not relate to what's going on in the poem, but like that's sort of what this is doing. It's taking the camera across the country and you drop in for a moment on these people in all of their different places and they happen to be having the same experience of reading this poem but they are still so fully embedded in their own lives that they do not become the collective we of poem readers at any point they remain individuals who have this experience in common and maybe they will cross paths at some point through happenstance but fundamentally it's just that there is this Within the poem and kind of, I think, the the larger point that Rich is making is that kind of no matter what, we're embedded in our own realities. But there are these points of connection. And like, as you were saying, this poem that was written the year that like we were born can be very <laughs> impactful. Like the other day, partially, I think, because of the current degree of social distancing that everybody's doing and whatever, I was listening to... Uh, Mavis Staples album from 2008 Hope at the Hideout and she plays the song We Shall Not Be Moved like classic we've all heard it a bunch of times probably and there's a little speech she talks about in the middle where she's talking about during the civil rights movement uh, you know she and other people who were protesting they'd go sing at the protests and they'd go in the south they would basically when they were like ready for lunch they would go and stage a sit-in at some local place And when they were going to get thrown out, they would all sing the song. And like, I've listened to that album many times before. That story is obviously an impactful story, but it was like this huge 
emotional reaction I had to it that was just like surprising of the intense mm. like dedication and camaraderie that that embodied that was like a really important and also like talking about everybody joining hands the tactile thing like I could see the images of it because photographers had captured them and so it is this like you know this recording from 2008 about a woman relaying her experiences from the 1950s and 60s can still reach me and like there's probably 10 or 12 other people in the country who listened to that recording within the last week at least i don't know who they are i haven't talked to any of them i literally in my life don't know anybody else who owns this album but they're out there tens of thousands of people bought it and i'm sure that they've had similar experiences with it and on some level i'm aware of that and it's comforting and cool and i don't have to meet those people to know that it happened and i feel like that's some of what's also embedded in this poem is that idea that all of these people can know that the others are out there even if they are not connected to them and that there's some sort of like comfort and connection on that level too i think that's really right and i think that there's so many things happening in this poem that I would love to talk about it for about 40 hours. But the one kind of big poetic move is, the, you know, the repetition of the I know you're reading this poem, you know, and it happens every time. And, you know, it's the the, the fancy word anaphora. But, you know, I've had my peace with anaphora and I think. Maybe we can just say repetition, but uh, at any rate, part of the effect of it is simply like it's a nice propulsive, rhythmic, sonic continuity. At the same time, the, the sort of the choice of the phrase, I know you're reading this poem, is like basically I think like reinforces all the things that we've kind of talked about. It's one thing to be like, you know, we're all different people and we feel lonely, but we want to be connected and like we can do it. And obviously that sounds terrible and like hokey pokey. Um, but like it's one thing to like describe that. And then it's another thing to kind of like create the effect where you're you sort of like perceive on a visceral level like, oh, there is this distance between us and there's also this like space and moment of like connection. And I feel like that's where the magic of the poem is and that, that the repetition is like the thing that really does that because what it is doing is one, it's like centering the poem. Like it's, it's like, you know, not every poem says it's a poem. And so it's like, okay, here's the moment. Like, I know you're reading this poem, like here we are in this space uh, and then it's also just like, I know you. And, you know, that simple thing of like, if the poem were just like, and you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're doing that, like we would have a sense of, you know, the range of experiences and we would get something out of it. But the kind of like, I know you, that link between the I and the you and like all this, it's almost like this, like the fact that this is the moment that is the the formal propulsive engine and formal kind of grounding tool because it's the phrase that's repeated and repeated. And because the content is such that it's creating this link 
the most directly between this I and these you's. Like those work together, I think, to like, by the end of the poem, really like create this, for me anyway, like palpable effect of like feeling, you know, like I'm one of those you's in a way, even though I haven't been, you know, none of those descriptions describe anything like about me um, necessarily. And yeah, I just, it's amazing. It is. It well, it's such as you were saying. It's such an effective show. Don't tell of such a nebulous concept that would seem very hard to show in any way because it's an idea that is in no way concrete about this very specific type of sort of connection. <laughs> that it's like astonishing <laughs> to find any mechanism that is able to show that rather than just trying to describe it literally. And it is really effectively done in this poem as you were saying, especially through the anaphora, or I guess <laughs> repetition. Yeah. Um, we can keep anaphora. We can keep it. It's good. Yeah. It's done I no hear it's harm. a useful coping mechanism. Boom. <laughs> References. Nice. Ocean um, log. Check it out. It's a great poem. It's a, it's a great poem and a great book of poems. Way to go, Ocean Vong. So talented. Okay, I have one question. Bring it. Which is... You know, we've talked a lot about the kind of first most of the poem, but then this end is kind of, you know, is where it gets like a little more abstract and, you know, it goes. So I know you're reading this poem, listening for something torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you're reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed stripped as you are. I mean, damn, it sounds amazing. And I get a lot of chills when I read it, but <laughs> I'm still kind of working out like. So the bitterness and hope I can I get some of it, I think. You know, listening for something torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. So it's obviously, you know, it's abstract. So there's like multiple kinds of meanings that could be. But it's like listening for something is like, OK, why do you go to a poem? You have a yearning for something. You want to hear something like there's something missing that maybe the poem can fill or something. But then at the same time, a lot of these moments in the poem, the poem is like the thing that's also being done while the person is doing the other thing. So like the parent who's pacing beside the stove, warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand because life is short and you too are thirsty. So there's like turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. There's like this. On the one hand, the parent is thirsty and wants to read the poem, is listening for something. And then on the other hand, has this task, you know, which is, in in their case, like the child, uh, which they cannot refuse. Uh, and maybe that's kind of like what the tension is. And the bitterness and hope, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I come back to like, the ethical loneliness idea of just the feeling of for so long being so excluded or, you know, in the case of 
the young people by the fluorescent light, you know, counted out or having counted themselves out. That leads to such extraordinary bitterness. And yet by reading, like reading the poem is a kind of act of hope against that bitterness. But then the last part, which is so beautiful, I know you're reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are. I really like the way that the poem eases into its more figurative realm because you do get basically everywhere up till this point has been given a place. And then before those last two, I know you were reading, you do get taken from a physical place to somebody who's struggling with language. So you're almost already moved out of these described locations into still a discrete realm, but one that is not tied to a place. And then you get the, I know you were reading this poem, listening for something torn between bitterness and hope. And then you're kind of deposited back in a nondescript physical place at the very end where you have landed stripped as you are. So I'm interested in that transportation away from the physical and then back to it that happens over this little figurative segment at the end. But I don't know that that really helps me get a better handle on what I think is really going on in it. Yeah, I agree that it is cool that you're given that concrete example of a task that can't be refused with the child. But I think that's also an acknowledgement that to some degree, having time to read and especially having time to like read and think about poetry is a little bit of a luxury, um, especially to be deeply engaging with it the way I think implicitly all of the people in this poem are. They all feel to me like people who are getting something vital out of the fact that they're reading the poem. It's not just that they're reading it, but that it is a really important reading experience. And so the idea that it is in some way also a little bit of a transportive experience for them, you know, you're you're reading the poem, listening for something, you're looking for something in the reading experience that is more than just distraction. It might be that it is what takes you away from your present surroundings or your present concerns, but there's something core that you're trying to get to through the reading experience. And I think not precisely, but a little bit where I go with that ending is that this is the end of the poem. That experience is over. There is nothing left to read. And when you're done reading, you know, we have a lot of names for whatever this is, suspension of disbelief or immersion in the narrative or like whatever, but you're, you're done and you're dropped back <laughs> into your reality. There's a task that you can't refuse now because even if you were just reading this poem to procrastinate, like, well, it's over now. Sorry. Time to get back to living. And you are stripped back down to being yourself. And I think, you know, through the poem reading experience, you can become many things and you can be many things in the world of the poem. You can be transported into it or you can access parts of yourself that are different from the everyday mundane parts that you feel like you're most often engaging with or using. And when the poem ends and that world that you've been a part of concludes, you are stripped back down to whatever base elements of yourself there are. And you can still reach out to those things that you accessed when you were in the poem and bring them into that life, but 
when the poem ends, you've landed back in the world, stripped of that, you know, magic or essence or whatever, and you have to then consciously recruit it as opposed to give yourself over to it when you're actually reading. I like that a lot. Um, Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. Dedications by Adrian Rich. I know you are reading this poem late, before leaving your office of the one intense yellow lamp spot in a darkening window and the lassitude of a building faded to quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem standing up in a bookstore far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven across the plains, enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed and the open valise speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum and before running up the stairs toward a new kind of love your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room of eyes met and unmeeting of identity with strangers. I know you are reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out at too early an age. I know you are reading this poem through your failing sight, the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand, because life is short and you too are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem which is not your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are. so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or 
uh, work we should discuss, please let us know. Tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com. <laughs>